Luke chapter 22, verses 35 to 46, is our passage for today. And he, Jesus, said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Would you bow your hearts with me? Father, we humble ourselves before the greatness of your majesty, asking for your help as we prepare to open your word Lord, I pray that you would use the words of my mouth. Lord, I pray for your people. I I pray, God, that they would receive your word not as the words of men, but as what it really is, the very word of God. Minister to our hearts, God. Convict us. Challenge us encourage us. Lord, use this passage to shape us into another degree of conformity with Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. And we come once again to this dark night, the evening before Christ's crucifixion, when Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, The Lord Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and then betrayed and arrested. Uh, The hour that Jesus has so long spoken of and prophesied would come has now arrived. It is at hand. And this is clearly a, a watershed moment, not just in terms of what it will accomplish, 
with regard to God's redemptive purposes and that God's giving of his son, Christ's death, will bring redemption to those who trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That much is true. It's because of Jesus' death we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The cross is going to mean forgiveness and atonement and reconciliation with the Father for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. But there's more also. It also signals this new era in terms of what Christ's followers can expect from the world. It marks a shift in policy and a new approach to the disciples' apostolic and evangelistic labors. Look at verse 35 with me. Jesus first reflects back on that time when he sent out the twelve. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? That takes us back to chapter 9, where he calls the twelve together. He gives them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He tells them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Imagine being sent out into the world with nothing at all. Nothing whatsoever. Nothing in your hand except the promises of Christ that he will sustain you and keep you. You see the same thing again in chapter 10 where he appoints the 72. They also were not to bring anything with them, relying solely on the hospitality of the hosts that they encountered along their way. That was an exercise of faith as well. They were going out, uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God, calling sinners to put their trust in Jesus Christ, even as they must learn to go on trusting in Jesus Christ and in the promise of his word. From everything from salvation to daily bread. Well, now he invites his apostles to look back and to survey their experience. Look back on that time for just a moment. Did you lack anything? Nothing. They were sent out without anything, and yet they lacked nothing. Amen. A testimony to, to God's faithfulness. But now, Jesus says, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. You see how this brings into view uh, this principle that the wisdom of Christ may dictate different things at different times for different situations or different occasions. In in this case, chapter 22 and verse 6, the passage we're looking at today, supersedes chapter 10. And verse 4, go out without anything. And it proves to us, seeing as how this comes from the mouth of Christ himself, that there's nothing particularly holy about striking out into the world with nothing in your hands. In fact, 
Going forward, Jesus commands his people to avail themselves of provisions, of, to, to use lawful means as they go out in his name. Sometimes we can get this pietistic idea in our minds that it's somehow unspiritual or ungodly to take into account financial considerations or material resources when we have in our hearts and minds some spiritual undertaking that we would like to do. We think better to say, the Lord will provide, and we just strike out. Faith budgets would be a common example of this in churches today, operating on the basis of what you don't have. You don't have a word of special revelation like the apostles did, uh, that, the wor- that the Lord is going to supply something in particular. Uh, the Bible says in Proverbs 10, the hand of the diligent makes rich. Luke chapter 14 Christ says, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? The Lord Jesus actually commends diligence. He commends planning and preparation and good stewardship of the resources that he provides. He actually orders his disciples to take a money bag and a knapsack. You're going to need money. That's not unspiritual. You need provisions. You need resources. Now, we have to deal with this issue of a sword. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. You may not think that there's an issue to deal with here, uh, but there is. And the question at hand is this. Is Jesus speaking in literal terms or in metaphorical terms when he talks about buying a sword? Is he instructing his disciples to procure literal, physical swords? And if so, for what reason? Or is he speaking in metaphorical, symbolic language? It's a simple question But I will tell you, the answer is much more challenging to get at than you might imagine. There are good arguments on both sides. Those who who would argue for a literal sword have a, a very simple and a very compelling argument. They would say, well, he's obviously talking in, in literal terms here because he talks in literal terms about the money bag and the knapsack. So is there any good reason to think otherwise when we get to the sword? Now that, that, that still leaves open that question about what the purpose of the sword is. But it's, it's a straightforward argument. Now, the other line of thought runs like this. Jesus is talking in metaphorical terms for a few reasons. First, notice this. Notice that the, the, the instructions he gives go out to everyone. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Whoever doesn't have a sword, go get yourself one. But then skip down to verse 38. What do the disciples say? They, they look around them and they say, Look, Lord, here are two swords. 
To which Jesus immediately replies, it is enough. So everyone doesn't have a sword. There are only two swords to go around between the 11 of them. And yet, Jesus says, that'll do. So read that way, Jesus' words here can, can really be understood to be saying, look, when he, when he says it is enough, this has a double meaning. He says on the one hand, you, you don't understand, almost saying tongue-in-cheek, tongue that'll suffice, that, that, that's plenty. And, and then on the other hand saying, that's enough of this talk. What I am saying to you, is, it, it's lost on you. You don't understand what I'm commu- communicating to you. But either way, you see that if two swords are enough for 11 disciples, one hardly envisions them going to war against Roman legions. The disciples respond enthusiastically, look, Lord, here are two swords. Like, like Peter, they think, Lord, we're ready to go into battle. Lord, I am ready to die for you. You remember where, where Peter says that. But, but nowhere in Scripture do we get the idea that Christians should take up the sword in response to hostility on account of their faith. There's not a single example of that in the New Testament. A sword is a, is a, a weapon that is fashioned to wound and to take life. Just a few verses down from this, Jesus is going to rebuke Simon Peter for lopping off the ear of uh, of Christ's persecutors. Peter cuts off Malchus's ear, you remember that that scene, and, and Jesus responds there first by healing the man, and then he immediately turns to, to Simon Peter and he says, no more of this. He rebukes him. Now, I will mention, as just as an aside, that this passage really isn't the place to go to make an argument for pacifism or the right to keep and bear arms or matters pertaining to self-defense in other contexts. That is not the issue at hand here. Christ is speaking directly to how his followers should think about relating to the world because of the world's hostility to the one we worship and proclaim as the only way to the Father. So here is one non-negotiable truth we have to stress. Christians do not advance the kingdom of God by force. Jesus says this explicitly, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. How does the kingdom of God advance? It goes forward by way of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Jesus said that he didn't come to to bring peace to the world, but a sword. Well, what was the nature of that sword? It's a spiritual sword. It's the preaching of the gospel which is the good news of Christ, which does divide. That's how the kingdom of darkness is conquered. When at the name of Jesus, every knee bows and every tongue confesses 
that he is Christ, to the glory of God the Father. And so while Jesus allows that the eleven can carry two swords between the lot of them, maybe to defend themselves against wild animals, maybe to defend themselves against robbers, which were common in this part of the world at at this time, the emphasis seems to be more on spiritual preparedness. They are in the world, but they are not of it. Living as citizens in the kingdom of God is going to mean you will not find yourself at home in the world. You're not going to find yourself welcomed by the world, and so you need to be ready. You need to be spiritually prepared, spiritually armed to go out into the world. Now that understanding can be defended further by looking at what follows in verse 37. Jesus explains the rationale for this change in policy. Look at what he says there, verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. This is cited from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12 where it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now you see the way that Jesus grounds the instructions that he gives to his disciples in verse 36, those instructions to take provision with you. Make appropriate arrangement for your ministry and your life in the world as followers of mine. And then he draws this connection to the necessity that he fulfill this passage where it talks about him being numbered with the transgressors. You see the logic. Well, this fulfillment is in Christ's condemnation unto death where he was led away to be put to death with criminals. The holy and righteous one, the one that even Pilate was able to say, uh, I I find nothing wrong in this man, was delivered up to die in the place where murderers and adulterers and thieves go to die at Golgotha. That's where our Savior went. He was numbered with the transgressors. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? What is the relationship between that preceding verse, his instructions, and then this prophecy? Well, when Jesus uses this word for, for I tell you, he makes this assertion that his death is going to signal this major shift in attitude in the world, not just against him, but against his own. Not just against the Lord of glory, but against his disciples, those who follow after him. There's now going to be this cultural tide in many ways against the message of Christ. And so hear this in the same way that Jesus 
will be numbered with the transgressors, looked on as someone who is to be done away with, relegated to this company, so despised that the council of authorities were willing just to nail him to a tree, disciples are to be prepared for the same. Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be prepared for the very same thing. Jesus is going to be put to death between two criminals. Do his followers really think their lives are going to hold anything otherwise? Matthew 5 and verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A cross for Christ means crosses for his own. It means crosses for us, persecutions and sufferings and hostility and derision. John 15, verse 19, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you. As its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So this is a watershed moment. And disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ need to be spiritually prepared, spiritually armed, and the same holds true for us today. If we are to live faithfully in the world, we need to be prepared. We need to be armed with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, in a fitting counterpart to this, having ministered to his disciples in the upper room, Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom. The Bible says that is instructive in its own right, that he goes out to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom on the final evening before his crucifixion, just moments before his betrayal and arrest, Jesus does what? He goes to the place he knows is going to happen. He goes to Gethsemane. Why? In order to pray. In order to seek the face of God. This is not a time to break away from his habit. It's a time to lean into it. It's a time to press into that habit. It's a time to lean on the Lord. Unlike Peter... The Lord Jesus does not proudly boast of his readiness to die. Instead, he bows his heart in prayer. I'd encourage you to read all of the the gospel accounts of this scene in Gethsemane where it describes him almost stumbling, as it were, on multiple occasions to to, to seek God's face and then to arise again and to entreat his disciples and then to go back to prayer and seek the face of God again and then again and again, three times over, persistently, persistently seeking the face of God. Verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter in 
to temptation. Brothers and sisters, again, in the hour of, of, of Christ's deepest distress, what do we find him doing? What, what, what do we see on his heart? He's still concerned with the spiritual welfare of his own. He's, he's still thinking of his disciples and their souls. He isn't bent inward. He isn't self-consumed. There are no feelings of self-pity here. He will take his petitions to the Father, but he hasn't lost sight of his own. We already know Satan wants to sift them all like wheat. You remember that plural you from last week? He wants to sift all of Christ's disciples like wheat. What is the spiritual antidote according to Christ? Pray that you may not enter temptation. Dear ones, it is one thing to have temptation before you. It is another thing to enter into it. The two are not the same. Many people confuse temptation with entering in. To temptation. They are not the same thing. The question is what we do in the face of temptation. And Jesus shows us. He shows us the way forward here. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. I I wonder whether you have ever prayed that way with loud cries and tears. So distressed over your circumstances and your troubles and your afflictions and the the temptations and your desire to to not enter into them. That you you, you must utter up loud cries and tears to the Lord. Christ was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. How was he able to keep the law of God so faithful? How did he come to discover the way of escape every single time he prayed? He was a man of prayer. And it's that same response that he adjures his people to cultivate in their hearts in the face of our own temptations. Pray that you may not enter temptation. Each of you today are facing temptations. Temptations of various kinds. What is your plan? Do you have one? How do you intend to combat the tempter. How will you find victory over sin? Here it is, by casting yourself in utter dependency on the Lord. Avoiding sources of temptation is good. Proverbs 5, for example. You don't go by that woman's corner. Accountability partners are helpful. Listening to sermons and podcasts 
can be a blessing. But, brothers and sisters, we can do all of these things, and if we do them without going to our knees, we will fall flat on our faces. Ephesians 6, that that great passage that sets before us this spiritual battle raging against our souls. What does it say? Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Do you find yourself tempted, hard-pressed, anxious, fearful, overwhelmed? Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? How many of us just stop there instead of taking it to the Lord in prayer? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Follow the lead of our Savior. Jesus pulls away from the disciples here about a stone's throw and he kneels down and he prays. Now, three things I want to call to your attention that we can see and profit from in Christ's prayer here. First, trust in the sovereignty of God. How does Jesus begin here? Father, if you are willing. Now, what I want to call to your attention here is not so much uh, the conditional nature of that, although we will consider that, but what is bound up there. Father, if you are willing, what is implicit in that? If you will take just this much in, there is loads of comfort to be found here. Why, why do I say that? Jesus acknowledges, he, not just acknowledges, but he takes comfort and rest in the Father's divine superintendence over everything that's about to take place, whatever his days may hold. Father, if you are willing, you can do anything you please, because he does. The Lord does whatsoever he pleases. That is something we can learn from. Jesus is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And yes, he knows that he can fear no evil. He knows that the Father is with him. But he also knows that there is a mighty hand who is sovereign over it all. If you know that it is the will of God, Father, if you are willing, if you know that it is the will of God that orders your steps, and you know the character of the one who orders your steps, that he is good, and he is gracious, and he is loving, and he is faithful and compassionate and merciful and trustworthy, that he works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. What relief there is to be found here in the sovereignty of God. Continue with me. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What cup is Jesus talking about there? Well, it's the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of God's righteous indignation poured out against sin. Psalm 75 and verse 8. 
For in the hand of Yahweh there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The word of the Lord that came to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25, 15. Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. You see then the awfulness of what stands before the Lord Jesus Christ when he speaks of this cup. You remember when James and John come to Christ and they want to be seated at the Lord's right and at his left hand in his glory, exalted to this highest place. And Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? The Father's beloved Son is about to drink the cup of God's wrath. Not as the wicked, but as the righteous. Not because of sins his own, but in the place of the unrighteous. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Some have wondered, looking at Christ's request here in this passage, did Jesus desire something that was contrary to the will of the Father? When he prays, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me? Was this prayer a moment of weakness or a blemish on his character? And the answer is no. No one but the Lord Jesus Christ could understand the horror or the grief of being forsaken by the Father. No one but Christ could understand this one who had known nothing but perfect unbroken fellowship with the Godhead for eternity past, what was entailed with having Yahweh lay on him the iniquity of us all. One author says, Jesus' request is not a blemish that mars his commitment to the work of the cross. Rather, his plea is the jewel of his character. For if you understand the contents of the cup then the desire to avoid it is part of his perfection. His hesitation is a godly one. There would be something wrong if he didn't flinch at this. Look at the prayers of the righteous in the Psalms. For them, what was the ultimate, the one unbearable terror? to be cut off from the light of God's face, to be under some outpouring of his anger. And it's the passion of the godly man to be free of that. So his, his plea is not a blemish on his perfection, but a sign of it. To have the cup of God's wrath removed is a good, holy Righteous plea. Number two, we see, this, we see submission to the will of God. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Setting aside my desires, what I would will, what I would desire, Father, let 
your will be done. Last week we saw together how the prayers of our Savior always reach their desired end because he always prays perfect prayers. What is his petition here? There is a real sense in which his petition really isn't that the cup be removed. That may be his preference, but it is not his great desire. His petition is that the will of the Father be done. That is Christ's dominating desire. That's what governs his, play, his pleas, and everything else is subordinated to that. That may seem like a distinction without a difference, but it isn't. Jesus may prefer, according to his humanity, that the cup be removed, but that preference is subjugated to this greater petition that the will of God be accomplished. In fact, he is emphatic on this point. You can see the way his prayer is bracketed or bookended by by this petition on, on both sides. Father, if you are willing, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We would do well to learn from this pattern in our life of prayer. Prayer is is not about changing the mind of God or twisting his arm. It is about making our requests known to him while we learn to submit our hearts in faith to his good and gracious will. Did God answer Jesus? He did. But did you notice how he did? His answer was not to remove the cup or to change his circumstances, but to strengthen him for the hour. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Is it fair to say that this is often, not always, but often, in keeping with the working of God's ways. Not to obliterate our troubles, but to minister his grace that we might be strengthened for the hour. It's the same answer God gave to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 where he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Rather than changing Paul's circumstances, God granted fortification for affliction. This is often in keeping with his dealings with his children, the tendency of his ways. I trust many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Using trials and temptations to drive us to our knees 
that we might find him to be our all in all, our sufficiency, what we truly need. Verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Was Jesus strengthened? Yes! Now, did the strength that he received mean he could just fly above all of his trials and afflictions? Not at all. Which brings us to our third observation. Perseverance before the face of God. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. More earnestly. Notice, by the way, that the biblical authors don't make Jesus out to be some kind of superhero figure, someone who doesn't know what it is to experience gut-wrenching, soul-agonizing trials. That's just one of many things we could point to that lends credence to the scriptures. Jesus had sweat like great drops of blood. A lot of ink has been spilled over this, wondering, again, is this something that is to be taken literally? There is such a physiological phenomenon where the body literally sweats blood, usually under extreme levels of stress. We know that Luke was a a physician and he very well could have been familiar with this phenomenon. You notice, though, he uses a simile. Here, that Christ's sweat became like great drops of blood. In either case, Jesus is under the most intense distress imaginable. Have you ever considered what the source of his agony was at this moment? He hasn't yet been betrayed. He hasn't yet been arrested or scourged or hung upon the cross, but he is already in extreme agony. Dear ones, we must locate the agony in what Christ connects it to in the immediate context here. What is he wrestling with as he goes to the Lord in prayer? It's the cup. It's the winepress of the fury of God's wrath against sin. That's what Christ was in agony over. And it was because Christ agonized over this that we don't have to agonize and labor and fear and terror of having God's righteous indignation poured out against us. Because Christ did in our place. Jonathan Edwards talks about one of the old martyrs, how it was, uh, was observed that he was exceeding joyful and merry when he came to the stake. And someone asked him why his heart was so light when death and, and that in such a terrible form was before him. He was about to be burned alive. Oh, said he, My heart is so light at my death because Christ was so heavy at his. 
in the midst of his agony, Christ perseveres on his knees before the face of God. The Lord of glory in his full humanity undergoes real affliction, but he also walks in complete dependence on and submission to the will of God. What a lesson there is for us there. If we're going to find victory over sin and temptation, we must learn to labor in prayer. Labor in prayer. To be watchful and diligent. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. We ought always to pray and not lose heart. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray with importunity. Well, what do we find in the disciples What do we so often find in our own lives? Slumber, spiritual slothfulness. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What a a remarkable statement and scene this is and what a tremendous contrast we have here between the disciples excuse me on the one hand and the Lord Jesus on the other the disciples are found in this state of despondency and fear and exhaustion and despair and what do they do they go to bed they sleep God help us repent of that same tendency in our own hearts. But contrast that with Christ. Christ has sorrow too, does he not? Sorrow to the point of death. Uh, The gospel according to Mark tells us. But for Jesus, what does it do? It drives him to his knees. He clings to the Father in the hour of his distress. We find him leaning on the everlasting arms. Not so for the disciples. They are undone by their sorrow. They seek refuge, not in the Lord, but in their beds. Sleeping for sorrow versus praying in sorrow. Brothers and sisters, sleep cannot steal you to face your troubles or drive your sorrows away. They'll be there when you wake up. You cannot sleep off spiritual or emotional malaise. You won't find victory over sin apart from prayer. I found it helpful just for my own sake as I was thinking about this to take verse 46 and put it in the inverse If we were to put this in catechetical form, we might ask this question. What is one of the great causes of unfaithfulness to God? Answer, slothfulness in prayer. 
How often do we fall into temptation or persist in these long seasons of spiritual depression because rather than falling to our knees and taking hold of God, we actually do the opposite of what we should do. We retreat and we withdraw. Rather than watching and praying, we sleep or we do some other modern equivalent. We lose ourselves in our televisions or our phones or some other worthless distraction. And Jesus would say, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He tells them again the same words when they got into the garden. Words they need to hear again. Words we need to hear again and again. Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What timely words these are for all of us. Lord, help us in this. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, we humble ourselves before the throne of your grace. God, we acknowledge how sluggish, how self-reliant our hearts often are, how quick we are to seek refuge in our beds and all manner of other things. How foolish this is of us, Lord. How foolish we are when you are so willing to grant strength and support to those who call on your name. God, we confess our need of you. Forgive us our sins, Lord. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, teach us Teach us to look to you when we are tempted and tried. Show us the emptiness of every other trust, every other false source of of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for a faithful Savior. Thank you for one who always sought your face, who always lifted up his heart to the one who was able to keep him from falling. Most of all, Father, we give you praise that Christ drank that awful cup in our place. That he received the judgment that we deserve. And that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are found in him. We give you glory. and We bless and worship your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.